Welcome to another episode of Professors at Work at the American University of Beirut, where we interview professors every week to talk about their research, what they're finding, why it matters, and how it's going to make the world a better place for all of us. I'm your host, Rami Khouri, journalist in residence at the American University of Beirut, and our guest this week, we are very pleased to have Dr. Charlotte Karam, who is an associate professor at the business school at AUB, and she is the founder and director of the Center of Inclusive Business and Leadership for Women, among many, many other things she does uh, at the Olayan School of Business and, and AUB. And we asked her to be here because of the extraordinarily fascinating and important range of issues that they deal with at the uh, center. Charlotte, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, let me start by just asking you, essentially, what is the main theme of your research and the aim of the center that you've launched now? It's primarily focused on examining and thinking about and putting into practice models of responsible organization. So what is a responsible organization? And more specifically, what is a responsible employer? And a lot of the work that we focus on is very much um, tied to thinking about this question of responsible organization and responsible employer within the Global South and more particularly within the Arab Middle East and North Africa. Because oftentimes you don't have, uh, the, the international benchmarks don't quite work in the way that we think about or the possibilities for responsible engagement. In particular, we're very interested in failing states or weak states and what is the role of private sector uh, within that context. And that's an important question because on the one hand, we want to be careful on, uh, in not leveraging private sector to the point that they're replacing or, or you know, giving, giving government, taking away from government's responsibility. That's really, really important and we recognize that. Um, we're also very cautious that you, know, you don't want private sector um, and markets to become stronger than the responsibility around you know, social structures and so on. That's very much recognizable. But a lot of the work we do is focusing in on today. How do we help provide employment, dignified work? How do we, what are the mechanisms of solving some of the issues now we have with high unemployment of youth, high unemployment of, of women? How do we do that now? And our, our idea or our focus is to partner with private sector, to partner with employers, to begin to shape the parameters of responsible engagement of private sector and employers within the region. So are you focusing primarily or solely on the private sector? Do you deal with civil society, NGOs, the government? Because they all employ people Yeah, too. it's an excellent question. In fact, we started thinking very much about private sector, and so our, our role were our initial focus, I would say about five, six years ago, even before the center started, but when we were building the foundation of the center, we're thinking a lot about SMEs and family-run businesses within the region because we SME, know SMEs being small to medium-sized enterprises uh, within the region because as we know that these make up the majority of the markets across the Middle East North Africa. But then we realized that, particularly in, in Mishrik countries like Jordan, Lebanon, and so on, you find that the NGO market, the, the number of people employed by NGOs, and in the Gulf, the number of people employed by the government is you know, outstanding. So we started moving more towards thinking about it as responsible employers cutting across civil society, public sector, private sector. And in uh, business, in the Middle East, you also have a uh, 
proportionately bigger share of family-owned and family-run businesses, right? Yeah, absolutely. The majority are family-owned, family-run. And you know, something that people don't often talk about is employer, largely the way we recognize it within our, our discipline, uh, is formal economy. Even within you know traditional models of economics, even within traditional models of political science, when you think about employment, we think about formal employment, we think about the formal markets. But if you really want to think about responsible organization and responsible employment in our region and in many and in, in many regions across the world or underprivileged communities across the world, you need to start thinking about the informal employment, right? So in Lebanon, for example, the majority of our youth who graduate with college degrees or technical degrees are employed but informally. What does that mean? They don't get social security, they don't have retirement funds, they have it's a very precarious situation. So our role in the center is how do we partner with these employers, even if they're informal employers, to try to create more dignified models of employment. This also raises another issue, I think, which is which something you're very much involved with, which is measuring uh, what is the exact situation of employment, especially women's employment. And uh, you need to get accurate statistics, and a lot of people in the informal economy are not counted. Yeah, that's a, a, an excellent question and it very much gets to the heart of what we've been obsessed with myself and my colleagues, uh, Wasim Idbout, Lama Musawi, Fida Afuni, uh, Carmen Jaha, this form a core team of uh, work that we're focusing on called the KIPP Index. KIPP stands for Knowledge is Power. So the idea of the KIPP Index is, was specifically raised, every time we asked a question about women's employment, in particular in the region, and we wanted to get statistics, like for example, how many women um, across you know, the 11 or 12 or 30, however you define the Middle East, how many women are in middle management? You know, how long did it take them to get to middle management? Um, what, you know, what are the, how many people apply to a particular STEM job? There, there are no statistics. And even statistics that are, uh, done by highly reputable, rigorous methodology by international organizations or international non-governmental organizations or intergovernmental organizations, oftentimes the, we question, like, where, you know, this is national level statistics, it's not really telling the story of the individual women or the individual organizations. So the data deficit is one of the largest problems we have in terms of moving forward positive strategies for employing women in unmarginalized groups within the region. And so the KIPP index, its primary aim, is to measure um, the recruitment, retention, and promotion of women across 11 countries of the Arab Middle East and North Africa. And do you have initial findings yet of what are the situations of with women in these kinds of positions? We're in the um, thick of right now analyzing the data. And what's really interesting about the index and we think is innovative is that we've, uh, we've developed or we're following a feminist participatory model of developing the index. And what that means is, first and foremost, we as experts in the field we do not dictate what should be on that index. We partner with local um, partners in each of the countries. We ensure that the index captures both qualitative and quantitative data. We ensure that the women, women's voices, those that are employed in the region, um, are, are actually captured within the way that we measure. Are there any initial results, just to speak to your question? We're finding that there's a lot of similarities across sectors, and so we question should one rank country or should one rank sector as, as sort of uh, the results of the index? And we're more and more moving towards 
sectorial-based uh, rankings. But wait, stay tuned for the results. Yeah, one of the things you and your colleagues talk about is things like local trail, trailblazers that are women in positions, but they're kind of hidden. They're not publicly acknowledged. What are you finding in that area? For us, a lot of the efforts, the billions of dollars that have been invested in the region around women's economic empowerment often focuses on we need to educate these women, we need to train these women. There's nothing wrong with that, that's important. But what we're finding is that the real problem lies in the structures. So who we believe at the center, who we should be educating is not the woman who wants to be an engineer mm -hmm. um, because there are many who are already educated. Who we should be educating are those, the decision makers in the structure itself. Our focus is on structural change. So when we say that we're looking for trailblazing organizations, we're very happy to, to, to be able to say this, that when we're partnering with our 11 country partners and we're actually surveying these companies and interviewing them and talking to people, we're recognizing, wow, this is really great stuff. We've never heard that, we've never heard that you've done this before. We've never seen models like this. So for example, when we go into Saudi Arabia, and they centralize Sharia into the way that they do their human resource management. They come up with the most liberal and, and wide-spanning maternity leaves and lactation rooms and daycare, right? Which, which really, if you, if you look at it, best in the world. I mean, really wonderful, some of these organizations. But we never hear about them. So part of our work is let's identify indigenous models of creating structures of inclusion for women in workplaces across industries, and let's learn from them. Not, none of them are perfect. Of course, no one is perfect, but we learn from them. We learn from them indigenously, and, we, and our idea is to build, you know, highlight these trailblazers, bring them together, and create a network of employers that can move forward. You talk about dignity, dignified work. You also address the issue of sexual harassment, and others all fall into a basket of uh, of issues that are really important uh, to women and to the success of the companies or the organizations. Uh, are you working in that area as one of your main targets? Yes, so our work around sexual harassment started in around uh, 2015 and it was particularly focused to Lebanon, although now we're working across the region on this. And what we notice is that there aren't many, let's talk specifically about Lebanon. Lebanon does not have a legislation that, against uh, sexual harassment. And so our first initial impulse was um, let's work with private sector to try to figure out how to put in protections within their employee codes of conduct, regardless of whether there's national legislation or not. How can we protect, right? And, and oftentimes that's really important. When you're working with private sector, you want to partner with them to move things forward. And in failing states or weaker states or where legislation doesn't quite exist, you can't wait for the government to, to right. come forward, right? So part for employers are often a good partner there. We have some models where we implement it. Then we thought we need to have a parallel process of working on national legislation, right? Because right. We, we can't wait. So we've been working since 2005, building on work that had started before us with AUB colleagues and colleagues across the country, NGOs, uh, and so on. And one of the main definitions was the idea of dignified. And I'm glad you asked this question because dignity and dignified is a really important concept to unpack between international discourses about dignity 
and regional discourses about dignity. So oftentimes when we would talk about dignity, dignity, within our context it would often be seen tied to honor and honor of the family and therefore virginity of the woman and you know this idea of aib and social, very um, traditional notions of it. Whenever we, we went to um, debate or bring in, you know, think about the sexual harassment law and how we wanted to put it together, dignity would come up. And we knew that this is not something we should put at the center of sexual harassment, the honor and dignity. So when we say dignified work, we define it in a very specific way and we've used it too as the basis in the way we've developed the, the legislation, which by the way is now being debated in Parliament. And the dignity for us ties to the idea of living a dignified life, having the ability to have, you know, have security, be able to eat, and so on. So dignity is more tied to human rights and a, uh, the ability for your collective to live in a, in a peaceful and, and, and way of, of well-being. So uh, let me ask a devil's advocate question. Why does all this matter um, if these companies are working, if women are getting paid here and there. What is the benefit to society, to the firms and the organizations, as well as to the women themselves and the other men employees? Where does this work have an impact on society and, and, and making our world better for everybody? Yeah, I think um, on multiple levels. I think first and foremost, it's rather political. I think this work matters because at the core and the heart of it is reclaiming the way that knowledge and stories are told about Arabs and Arab women and other ethnicities within the Arab Middle East and North Africa. This work matters because we have to reclaim the way data is created about us and what that data says and what are the, ba what are the basic assumptions in and if you're doing statistics and the way we compute, who are we, who are we using or what weights are we using as benchmarks to measure statistically the, the various dimensions of the index? What are the questions we're asking? What are the assumptions upon those questions? So in the work that we do, it matters because we're asking the questions that make sense within our context for progress within our context against our own benchmarks. And I think that that's really, really important. And progress means both economic growth as well as the uh, well-being and dignity of individual human beings. I mean, absolutely. I mean, no one can deny that economic growth is extremely important, particularly me in a business school. I'd probably be shot if I said otherwise. But, but I think that we need to be more critical about this. Uh, we need to understand and think about the link between dignified work or the link between bringing more women or marginalized groups into the economy and economic growth. Because we can't think, you know, the, our goal should not be sweatshops more and more women just so we cannot sacrifice the dignity and well-being of individuals within the market just for market growth because we've learned from this right, right? we've learned from the the evils of sweatshops and large industry we can do it better we can do it better and we have done it better so we need we need to really achieve not think about achieving economic growth at any means possible we have to have uh, serious considerations about social security fair wage uh, um, and safe workplaces and so on it's and a balance uh, I know there's been a lot of work done in the Western world where the uh, feminist movement has been um, usually 
more active than it has been in the Arab world, that the Arab world is catching up. Uh, but they've done a lot of studies there about what happens when a woman works full-time, what happens to the family, what happens to the kids, what happens to the income, where does the extra money go. Are there cultural differences here and in the West, say, or Japan, or uh, when women work more in the Arab world, do you have any insights from your work yet about the different ways that more dignified employment for women actually not just helps economies grow, but maybe has a positive impact on the family or the community as well. I would just want to st step back to the beginning of your question because I have a problem with the, the way you formulated it in the sense that, no, we don't have a long way to catch up. Western models, not all Western countries, are advanced on all areas of dignified work against women. I think a lot of, of um, there's a history of Arab feminism that uh, predates what we understand in our textbooks as feminism. You know, in, the, in America, we're in our fourth wave of feminism, and one, one assumes that now the Arab world needs to go through these waves, but no, Arab women, there are very early texts yeah. of Arab feminists, right? Islamic feminism, Muslim feminism, yeah. right? So we don't need to catch up. What, what, what I think is happening, the, if you look at even international benchmarks, like World Bank benchmarks on women's progress, if you look at the progress the Arab Arab region is going to take 157 years for parity, according to the World Bank, um, which is you know accurate. I'm not saying that that's not accurate, but if you look at the progress in individual countries, in Saudi Arabia, for example, it has jumped very quickly within a very short period of time. They're not necessarily following the same trajectory of mm -hmm. women's progress. We have our own trajectory. We have to define our own trajectory. So I just wow. that's really important to yeah, make. Yeah, no, it is. To yeah. make. Um, but your, your second part of your question was about, you know, what are some, so what are we learning maybe more about dignified models that are specific to the Middle East or how do they compare to the, to the West? And how it impacts the family, not just the woman herself or the uh, organization where she works or the economic growth of the society, but going back to the family and the community. This is a really important question because one needs to think about within many of the communities across the Arab Middle East and North Africa, where is family placed, right? Yeah. So a lot of the models of society that one follows in, you know, that we learn in our Western textbooks of philosophy and so on is the idea of individual rights. Very important, of course, human rights, the human right declaration, so on. Individual rights and dignity is extremely important. No one's denying that. I'm certainly not. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at a lot of the communities within our context, family and society and community are extremely important and often the center of dis deciding. I decide for, you know, not necessarily as an individual, but there is a, some theories of collectivism versus individualism, although that's a little bit problematic. But when I decide for myself, that means I'm also deciding for my dad and for my mom and for my community, because the identity of the individual within the Arab region has been shown to be wider, right? So the question then becomes that if I'm thinking about women economic empowerment, am I talking about the individual woman or am I, is it tied to the community in which she's embedded? In my view, it's tied to the community in which, in which it's in, uh, she is embedded. And right. if that's the case, then it gives us more reason to tackle the structures yes. that keep the communities down. When you look at current neoliberal feminist models in the, in the, in the West and, and you know, globally, they often talk about we can empower women by educating women. 
we need to train her. We need to get her to lean in like right. this Sandberg's uh, famous, famous book. This is fine, but this to me is 10% of the problem. What we need is a community structure. What we need is to change structures. It's, not, it's about providing better opportunity. It's about creating op HR opportunities and organizational opportunities and market opportunities that help the, the, the community. It's not about her, it's about the structure. So we only have a couple of minutes left with this extraordinary range of issues that you're dealing with focused on dignified employment, changing structures, uh, gender equality, etc. They all link in many, many different ways. Um, how do you prioritize uh, where you, where, where is the center of gravity of all of, of this work and, and how will you measure your success or what you've learned and how what you've learned can uh, impact society? I think you measure success by the number of individuals who um, can live a better life because of the work that you do. So, you know, we recently launched a, um, a section in, in the Journal of Business Ethics, which is, you know, premier journal of business ethics um, globally, one of the top. And some colleagues and I uh, were invited to think about and launch and kind of frame this new section. You know, it's, the, it's the, one of the first times you have a feminist section in a, in a, in a wow. mainstream business journal, mm -hmm. right? And when I was drafting the description of the section, you know, the same question came up. I mean, what, what are we doing differently when we're bringing the feminist lens to mainstream academia? And I think what is different is that at the end of the day, words, of course they matter, and arguments matter, and frameworks and paradigms matter, but all that really matters is how many lives have improved because of the work that you do. And I think for me, I do a lot of different things, it's very true, you know, I'm, I'm working in public policy, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm working very much with students, with activists, my wonderful colleagues, very cross-disciplinary with finance and political science and economics and all those things. But the center of gravity is sort of orchestrating all of this to move forward on a strategy that will improve the day-to-day -day living of the individual. Wow. Well, on that note, we've got to bring this episode to an end. So thank you, Dr. Charlotte Karam from the Aulian School of Business, Associate Professor and Founder and Director of the Center of Inclusive Business and Leadership for Women at AUB. We have learned a lot, and you've got a lot to do, and thank you for everything you do. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak. And thanks to our uh, audience for being with us. This is Rami Khouri. Join me again next week for another episode of Professors at Work, where we talk to scholars and faculty at AUB to explore the research they're doing, why it matters, and what they're discovering. Bye for now.